0: Good morning. It has been an extraordinarily heavy week. Uh, I know I can't ever exactly recall a week like this in my life in some ways. Some of that for me, I think, um, and I think there are far more important things at stake than my feelings, but just to give you a little glimpse into where I come from, is that um, there are basically only two places I've ever lived in my life that I've lived and loved, and everything that I love is between those two cities, and that's Charlotte and Tulsa, and what a crazy thing that, whether it be CNN, NPR, whatever national kind of news you might be watching or listening to, to feel like this week that Tulsa and Charlotte is kind of the center of the world right now, everything things sort of revolving around what's, um, what's happening here. We, um, in terms of the leadership here at Sanctuary, really um, struggled to discern because uh, we wanted to support our entire community the best that we possibly can in all of its complexity. And we were kind of scrambling this week, uh, potentially going to add a, a service. But we ended up doing, and a number of you were able to come, which was wonderful, Wednesday night there was a, a vigil for Terrence Crutcher at Metropolitan Baptist Church, wonderful historic black church in town, and a number of us got to go. And I was so, so thankful that we did because I felt like I saw and witnessed things in that space uh, that were so important. Uh, it was a powerful thing for one uh, to be in a space where people really have permission to express feelings of rage and sorrow and alienation but to do that in a context of Christian community and love where it's safe. And just a footnote to that, if we want people to respond to their own feelings of rage and hurt in ways that are constructive rather than destructive, we have to be willing as communities of faith to provide those kinds of spaces. We have to not be afraid of that kind of primal cry that comes up. We have to make room for that. It was a beautiful thing. It was a beautiful thing, the kind of prayer that took place there, the kind of unity. And that's always the strangest, of course, of how God works, is that it's always not despite, not around, but like smack dab right in the middle of the worst things, that God shows up in the most profound ways. Um, so I feel like already, even for all the things that feel volatile, that we're just seeing the Holy Spirit do some beautiful work in our city. And some sense, even though i don't know what this means i'm I' still feel like the new kid on the block here but i've been i've lived in Tulsa for sixteen or seventeen months. I can call this home right It feels like home to me you you accept me doesn't matter it's my home anyway i'm just kidding it's uh you know no there's like this sense you know of even among um among Christian leaders in town and what this where do we go from here. I just feel like you know it doesn't feel like just sort of a speed bump or some random whatever. It feels like there's just stuff happening that needs to be happening, and I'm, I'm thankful for that, but at the same time, uh, in my own city where I come from that I love so much in Charlotte, the, the kind of chaos that's been all week long, just a lot of pain and grief, and I understand that uh, even though there's a lot of things that I'm feeling, there's still a way that I'm kind of peering into all that as an outsider in a way, too, so I'm, I'm mindful of that. Um, so there's a lot I want to say. I did not select the text. This morning, the text selected me. This is the gospel reading for this week. And it's been an interesting journey, even what that's come to mean kind of through these days. But if you don't mind, I do want to pray one more time. Um, I I just, and I appreciate your prayers. There's just a, there's a lot going on. But I'll I'll say it like this. This is one of only a couple times in my life this has happened. I really sought the Lord this week um, in ways that aren't common for me because I'm lazy. And really, but I sought the Lord this week. For a word for you. And this is one of the only times in my life where I've ever had the response by the time it was all said and done of kind of saying, you know, that's a lot more than I was asking for. <laughs> so, with that in view, let's take a moment to pray. Well, God, we are so grateful to be in this safe space where the people of God gather. And we are grateful for your spirit that sighs and groans where we don't have words to utter your spirit sighs and groans through us for all the ways of the world is not yet right we join the creation in the sighing and longing for the king of kings and the lord of lords to make it right and we thank you father for your presence. Already today, we've prayed for the family of Terrence Crutcher. We do. We are so mindful, God, of our, um, our community and of our city this morning and all, all of its incarnations. We're mindful of our brothers and sisters, our friends in law enforcement in town, beautiful people that we love. We're mindful of everybody on all sides, and we just lift all of your sons and daughters before you. We pray most of all now, Lord, that just knowing that we're just one sliver, just one small part of the city, we just want to, uh, we want to walk in grace and in truth. We want your heart, we want your perspective on the world around us, and we just know there's, there's just no way that these things can be revealed to us unless your spirit uh, reveals the way, unless your spirit shows us. So we just pray that now that you would show us, that you would guide us but open up our eyes, our ears, that we might see and we might hear. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And everybody said, amen. Amen. Whatever you're feeling for me right now, it's not anxiety exactly. It's just, there's a heaviness. Partly because approaching a text like this, which really is all about perspective, I'm so suspicious of my own perspective. I'm so aware of my own capacity to have the truth eyeball to eyeball staring me down and yet still not be able to see it for what it is. I'm aware that I can have the text in front of me. I'm aware that I can hear the witness of the Spirit and so often see that and hear that and remain unchanged. A lot of what I feel like this text confronts in us is the way in which that if we have our hearts set in a, in a certain perspective, if we see the world in a certain way, then it, it becomes nearly impossible for us to, to unsee that. It becomes, it can, because we, we become so blinded to, to our own approach, to our own perspective. Let me put it like this just to give you some context, right? So when I first saw that this was the text for today, uh, as I always do, I kind of look at the text a little bit down the road, think about it, pray about it, start to think about you know, potential ideas for how I might want to handle it. And so I read this text this week. Keep in mind, and we'll revisit that in a second, but the whole context here, this, uh, this story, which I do believe is a parable, uh, is that the, the ca- there's this chasm between the rich man and Lazarus. There's a chasm between them in the afterlife, but there, that didn't start in the afterlife. There was a chasm between them when they were both still alive. Lazarus, the poor man who begs by the gate, the rich man who has lots of sumptuous foods and fine things and who always ignores the poor man. There was always a chasm between us. And so much of what this text does then is sort of flirt a bit with this issue of perspective, right? Because um, there, there is a, a chasm between both. Places And we see something of uh, how the rich man had seen before, how Lazarus had seen before, how they're seeing things now. A lot I'll say about that in just a minute. The point is, and this is just confessing, I got to this text and I got really excited because I thought I'm so interested kind of academically in um, different ideas about hell and judgment and all that. And I thought, man, this is a great sermon to be able to talk about that. Because, you know, like, uh, and I'm not going to go into the whole thing here, but just just work with me. So there are three different words that get translated into the word hell, and especially in our older translations will not distinguish between them often in ways that aren't super helpful. In the Old Testament, you've got hell as sheol, which is the place of the dead or the grave, which really doesn't mean anything about in terms of a place of torment. There's not a, a very articulated understanding of the afterlife in the Old Testament. Most Jews believe that, you know, when you're done you're done. So Sheol in that context is often the grave. Then we have Hades uh, in a text like here, one of the few places that appears in the New Testament, which sort of borrows a bit from uh, Greek Roman culture to some of the imagery there. And then we've got Gehenna, which is a different image of hell that had to do with really the place in the Old Testament where it was the trash dump where everybody would take all of the refuse and they would throw it into a pit and they would burn it. It was considered an unsacred place because that was a place where in the Old Testament, children had been slaughtered in sacrifice to pagan kings. And I'm just thinking, oh my gosh, finally here's a great opportunity in a sermon to talk about Hades and Gehenna and Sheol and to kind of bounce all this stuff around. Won't that be a great time? What's disconcerting to me about this now... (laughs) Some of you think this would be fun. You understand why this would be a good time to me? What's really, what's scary to me about this... You know, so I was thinking about that for a couple days. And especially with everything else happening in the world, you know, I'm rereading this text. I'm thinking, oh my gosh, how on earth was I going to take this text and do like a lecture on ideas about hell? And I know why because I don't like this text. I don't want to deal with the plain truth of it, (laughs) which is that I, in far too many ways, identify with the rich man more than Lazarus. It, it, it seems very apparent. This is a shadowy kind of story. It only appears once in the Gospels, only here in Luke. However the rich man has got to this place, clearly it has something to do with how he treated Lazarus. Clearly the very fact that he and his affluence and wealth overlooked his poor brothers is why he's here. This is the reason for the chasm. This is the reason that this man is in judgment. So no wonder then that for somebody like me that comes with a certain kind of privilege that I read a text like this and think, oh boy, it would be fun to punt around different abstract ideas about hell. Because I don't want to deal with the, with the way the text judges me. I don't want to deal with the way the text cuts me open. I don't want to deal with the way this calls me into account. I don't want it to mess with my own theology. I don't want it to mess with my own perspective. It really is all about... Perspective here. One of the things I find most fascinating about this passage is that when the poor man, or when Lazarus, rather, now uh, is in, and he's, he's now at the feet of Abraham. In fact, some translations will actually say here, which I think is right, um, in the bosom of Abraham, this place that he's described is it's the bosom of Abraham, Abraham himself, Father Abraham, holding him close. He's in this place of paradise, he's in this place of safety. And while he's there, the rich man now is in torment. He's tormented by the flames, and he's asking, still entitled, still in the afterlife, set in the same posture and spirit that he was in when he was still alive. He tells Father Abraham, why don't you send Lazarus to me to bring some water to to put out this fire? Can Can you send Lazarus for me? And while this rich man is in torment, he can can see all of this. There's a chasm between them. There is a divide. But he can see through it to see poor Lazarus now being comforted and to be able to see Father Abraham. One of the things that strikes me most about this is how it's possible that you can have these two places that are so very separate. How could there be a greater distance than the distance between paradise and Hades? How could there be a greater distance than the distance between the bosom of Father Abraham and the place of fire and torment? How could there be a greater distance than the distance between the place of consolation and the place of desolation? And yet, for as far apart as they are, Clearly, they're not geographically that far away because from one place you can still see the other. The very fact that the rich man is close enough to see Lazarus and to see Father Abraham, there may be a divide, but it's close enough to where you're able to see. So close together in some ways, so far away in others. In many ways, not unlike the distance between North Tulsa and South Tulsa. Really close in some ways, but really far in others. Geographically, you can look out your door and you can see down the street, but the lived reality, the experience between those places could not be more dramatic, could not be more Different. But part of what happens now is that whereas that chasm existed before the death of these two men, there always had been a chasm between them. For the rich man before, he has the luxury of ignoring this. He doesn't have to think about Lazarus or Lazarus' reality, he doesn't have to think about his experience, he doesn't have to be burdened with that. He just out of sight out of mind. Now, the script has been flipped, and now he's very mindful of that distance. He's very mindful of the chasm. Because, as I think it is always the case within the kingdom of God, when we get into God's view of reality, when we get into God's perspective on our own space, it always turns our own perspective upside down and inside out, doesn't it? The world in the afterlife is very upside down from the kind of world that they experienced before part of how we know this is that the rich man in the text is not named but Lazarus is that's not how the world works on this side of the afterlife that's not how the game is played we know the names of the rich and famous we know the names of the influential. And then, for anyone who's poor, that giant, enormous category that for many of us has no particular faces the poor. Those people, they're nameless and they're anonymous. We only know the names of the rich and the influential. I had a really extraordinary experience these last couple of days and it's, it's been an eventful week on so many fronts, uh, the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture uh, opened in D.C., and uh, so, so blessed and humbled, sincerely, to get to go to the White House reception for the opening, which is just a wonderful experience. My, um, my friend Deisha is the social secretary for the White House, and it was funny because to be in a room like that, and, I mean, <laughs> I've never felt more out of place in some ways because I'm like, you know, the, the, talk about being the nameless person. It's just very, very in over in my head, but in a wonderful way, like so excited to be there. But there was this one moment that was especially surreal. There was a lot like this in this reception, in the East Wing. And uh, while I'm talking to Deisha, a lady comes in and she, uh, she called out to her, like in the way that she did it, this kind of big, exaggerated kind of way. It's like it's a voice that sounded uh, familiar. And about the time that she did that, Disha said, oh, hang on just a second. I'm so sorry. I just need to go say hello to my friends. And that lady who called out to her, I was thought to myself, "Like, Man, that's, she sounds like Oprah. <laughs> and I turned around, I'm like, OMG, that's Oprah <laughs> and Stedman. <laughs> and it's wild, even in a room like that, like Oprah walks in the room, bam, like everybody's super I mean, it's Oprah. One of the most Influential, wealthy—I mean, she owns the universe. <laughs> the president said, "Which is about right." And you know, not to use her to sound like that's a negative example here. Thanks be to God that she donated twenty million dollars to the Smithsonian. That's wonderful, right? But the the point is that we all know Oprah's name, and we all know the names of people who are deemed successful. That's just the way the world works. What the gospel calls us to, though, and this is where I think reality shifts. Reality shifts when we start naming people in a way that's different. The world changes when instead of just naming the successful and influential, we have to learn other names. When the folks that are being named are not just the people of power, but the names that we're learning are names like Terrence Crutcher. Names like Alton Sterling, names like Philando Castile. The world looks different when people start being named. And the reality of the gospel always does this for us. It, it creates this inverse where now those who were not named before are being named. And what are we going to do with those names. What are we going to do with Lazarus? There is a great, great chasm, and one of the things that I find myself struggling with most this morning is this sense of, um, and I think I've prayed through enough this week to where I actually feel a lot of hope, but I often have moments of great despair because a lot of these divides, I mean, I don't know how to fix any of that. Do you? I mean, we can, there are plenty of things we can talk about. There are plenty of things that might help. Um, just a footnote here, um, I do believe that the heart of all problems, that there are spiritual problems. I really do believe in all that, but I don't ever, I don't want to be the kind of person who says that as an escape. Well, you know, it's a spiritual problem. All we can do is pray, that so there's nothing to be done. I think sometimes there are things to, to be done. I think there's, sometimes there are policies to be changed, good work to be done. So I'm not trying to say it that way. But the point is that on so many levels, when you have that much distance, when you have that much space, when there's still that much space between black and white in America, when there's still that much space between rich and poor, because it's not just race in terms of economy, social class, all, all, these divisions are so profound and so pronounced, and they're so entrenched, that it really can seem impossible to imagine what it would be like for those chasms to be crossed over. And what I find to be terribly tragic about those of us within the church is I think you have a lot of good-hearted, well-intentioned people who really would like to see bridges built, who really would like to see this better, but just who often don't know what to do because these chasms were here before we got here. They've been here for a very, very long time. And it's not like any of this is going to somehow change overnight. One of the things that was powerful for me about being around for the museum opening is thinking about the 400 years of history that that museum represents. That in the grand scheme, that in broad strokes... It's not been all that long ago since that auction block that is there was used for a 16-year-old to be bought and sold. That's not really all that far. A lot of other things that have happened in the history of race in our nation 40 and 50 years ago, it's really not all that far. These things have been entrenched for a very long time. And yet, I think especially for white Christians like myself, there is this tendency to pretend as if these 400 years have not happened. None of that has happened. It's a new day. It's a blank slate. Of course, everything is basically just. Of course, things are more or less equal, because I haven't had any experiences like that. Anybody hear what I'm saying? That's the luxury of the rich man's perspective, is that we're able to forget that these things happen, that we're able to forget some of these realities. We don't have to live with them. But the truth is, the chasm that's been carved out from 400 years is a pretty deep one. There's a lot of water that's already passed. There's a lot of things. And it it does not change overnight, I'm doing my best to give this message without a lot of disclaimers, because I'm just not in a disclaiming kind of mode. <laughs> I'm much more in a truth-speaking kind of mode. I know that things are super polar right now, and I can give all the disclaimers that we need. Of course, you know, there's no villainizing the police. We have so many connections. with We love all that. But the amount now of friends in my own life that I've talked to, black friends who've had really negative experiences with all kinds of authority figures, and have told me that when I try to share this with the white person, to the extent that I get a response at all, it's basically some version of, well, that's never happened to me. Which raises the questions, right? Like when you say something like that, theoretically even, what is the argument that you think that you're making? Like what point does that prove? <laughs> well, that's never happened to me. Good. Is, isn't that the idea? Because what we're seeing right now is so much bigger than just the mounting list of incidents, though the list continues to grow. It's more than a handful of episodes. We're talking about broad, deep, embedded systems and structures that have not yet bent to the will of King Jesus we're talking about broad stuff. We're talking about how we see. We're talking about how everybody sees. And that's part of what makes stuff like this so uncomfortable, is that what happens in these particular moments is that it, it illuminates ways that we see and ways that others see different, and ways that we just don't want to come to terms with. There is an awful lot of history, an awful lot of stuff that has gone between us, so many things that have gone before to the point to that we're there again. It's like there is no easy way to cross this divide. I've heard a number of well-intentioned white people in my life say things like, you know, the whole thing about this deal with racism, it wouldn't be such a deal if people just didn't talk about it. And in the words of that great SNL sketch, really? Really? Is that really what we think? The problem exists because we talk about it? I find that in the world at large, and certainly in the church in particular, we're really not good at talking about the uncomfortable things. It's the pain is real. The pain is actual. And one of, as I have asked some of my own friends especially those who are African-American but also find themselves navigating uh, white spaces, largely white churches, etc. Where's Where's the pain located for you? Like, what, what, what's the most, what, where, where's the harm? Like, what's the thing that feels the most raw? What's the thing that feels the most tender? And what I've heard repeatedly from people that I know is, the most painful thing is to have all these stories from your own life from your own experience, but to know that even among the church, even among the people of God, that if you talk candidly about some of those experiences, that people wouldn't believe you. They wouldn't believe my report. That not only is the perspective different, but in many cases, there's no, there's no room for mine. There's no space for mine. And I couldn't help but think about, within this particular text, back up just a bit, After uh, the rich man is begging, he says, I beg you to send him, to send Lazarus to my father's house. For I have five brothers that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Of course, Abraham replies, they have Moses and the prophets. They could listen to them. Uh, But he says, and, and I love this, he argues with Father Abraham. This is just a helpful footnote if you ever find yourself in an afterlife debate with Father Abraham. <laughs> this doesn't seem to work, to argue with Abraham. Because he actually says to him, the rich man, who apparently still, you know, for all that he's, all this torment, he's still got some hubris about him because he says, no, they'll believe. He says, no, <laughs> no, they'd believe if someone was sent back from the dead, And Abraham ultimately tells him, it's not true. If they wouldn't listen to Moses and the prophets, they are not going to listen to a man who comes back from the dead. And I think for a lot of our brothers and sisters right now, there really is this sense. That even if you have video footage, you're still not going to believe even if you have the evidence right in front, you're not going to hear it. You're not going to see it. You're not going to allow your own perspective on the world and on life to be challenged in any way because you've already decided what you think. And it can't be challenged. This is why moments like this, I think, call us to such humility to seek the Lord to be sure, to listen to God to be sure, but to listen to one another. To listen to stories and perspectives that are not our own stories. To listen to how the Spirit would speak to us through those stories. To provide space for the testimony and witness from a world that is not like ours. One of the things I do find interesting about that part of the text is that the rich man, even when he's talking to Father Abraham, sins for Lazarus. Okay, okay. So if you won't go back to tell my family about the judgment that's coming, and if I can't warn them, how about you send Lazarus? I mean, it's not funny. And yet, is there something about it that's a little bit like, wow. Well, maybe you could go send Lazarus to tell them. Maybe you could send him. Because that's... What the life of ease and comfort does to us is that if we see a problem, we say, send somebody. Even as this man now, and I think he really does care about his own family. His trouble is that he couldn't care about the rest of his human family that way. He cares about his brothers and sisters. He didn't know about how to care about anybody else. So he really does want help for them. Why don't you send Lazarus to go and do that? Why don't you send them? Well, I stay here. And I really think that part of what God has to challenge in us, God has to shift in us in a moment like this, is to take us past this thing that we do where we sit around and we see things that are broken and we see things that are fallen that we say, well, God, if you could send someone or send them to us, send them to us. I may not, have any of these kinds of people in my church, name the ethnic group, name the category. But, but you know, if somebody would send for them, nobody's telling them we can't come to church. Nobody's saying you don't have a place here. Send them. But see, that's really not how this works. The rich man walked by Lazarus every day at the gate And when it's time to build the kingdom, you don't send somebody else in your stead to come and draw folks. You don't send for them. You have to go to the gate. Anybody hear what I'm saying? We have to go to the gate. Not, Lord, send somebody and we'll love them. We got to go to the gate. Not send lightning bolts out of the blue, and if you magically give me some kind of revelation, we have to go to the gate. People are hurting and broken within our own community, and they're not going to be found unless the people of God are willing to go to the gate. There's no sending somebody else in our stead. And one of the things that I have come to resent a little bit about the nature of my own calling is so often when I feel like the Lord is trying to press me into doing something else, I have often responded with some sense of, I gave at the office. This is my job. I've already already preached the sermon, met with the folks, I've done everything I know to do. Send somebody else. (laughs) The fact of the matter is, me writing things and preaching sermons is not the same thing as going to the gate. It's not the same thing as learning Lazarus' name for myself. It's not the same thing as learning Lazarus' story. It's just not. It is not the same thing. And I really feel like the Spirit of the Lord would say to some of us right now who are sensing the angst and the brokenness and trying to figure out what to do with this, I don't have an easy solution. You should be suspicious of me if I did. Good Lord, really? Like, here's, well, here's what we're going to do. These four things. Okay, let's go fix Tulsa and Charlotte and the world. Of course, it's not simple. But I think what we have to pray about, I think the posture we have to be in is God what does it look like now for you to send us to the gate? What would it look like for you to send me to the gate? To send our community to the gate? Well, I hope somebody hears me preaching. I think this is the last thing I want to say. That's how I feel about it, too, actually. Oh, Lord. I don't have many notes. I just want to make sure this is all said because it all felt so weighty. The thing that even given all of this, trying to frame it in a way that would be hopeful and constructive, where do we go from here? One of the things that most haunts me about this text is uh, back up again in verse 26, when Abraham says, besides all this, between you and us, a great chasm has been fixed so that those who might want to pass from here to you cannot do so and no one cross from there to us. The rich man, who now is afraid for his family, afraid of them coming into the place of judgment, desperately wants the divide to be crossed. Abraham shuts this down. There's no crossing from here to there. There's no crossing from there to here. Just not how it works. You don't go skipping out of Hades into paradise, and paradise into Hades and back into the world or whatever. That's just not how the world works. And I feel like in so many ways that the division that we experience on this side of things really is equally profound. We see the chasm and we say, Lord, surely somehow can, can we get there? But we realize the more we press into this, especially if we get serious about it, not talk, especially really to, that th- these things are very deep. And we really don't know how to cross because people don't move casually between these lines. The boundaries have already been set, and it seems so impossible to go from one place to the other. It can seem impossible to somehow bridge the distance between North Tulsa and South Tulsa. What would that even look like? All the history. All the stories, all the, all the ways that already this has been skewed for so long. How does any of that change? And as I was meditating on this, I really felt like the Lord gave me something here that gives me great hope. It is true what Abraham says, that there is a divide that no man can cross. But on this side of the cross and resurrection, what we know is that the divide has already been crossed. No man can do it. But God can. God did. When we recite the creed, I don't. this is funny, I can't remember right now how we do it. Do we say he descended into hell or he descended to the dead? Which do we do? We do the dead. Well people often uh, disagree on that point because, you know, the idea, I think, in the creed, uh, probably in antiquity, really is a little bit more like he descended to the dead. Like, again, the word hell gets written. Sheol is just kind of like the place of the dead. So there's no political distinction here. I didn't even remember that that's how we do it. I'm fine with he descended to the grave. But I tell you, I'm also really comfortable with he descended into hell because I do happen to believe that there is... No kind of hell that exists that Jesus has not already been to. And whether you're talking about Hades or Sheol or Gehenna, whether you're talking about a ghetto, whether you're talking about Syria, whether you're talking about any place where there's poverty, pain, destruction, AIDS, disaster, cancer... There is no kind of hell which the Son of Love has not already been to and come out on the other side. He has been to the places that we cannot go. He has crossed over the chasm that we cannot cross. All the things that are impossible for us are possible for Him. And what gives me hope in a moment like this is that for all the ways that I don't know how to cross the chasm, and I don't know how to bridge the divide, I still believe that Jesus knows how to do that, which I don't know how to do. That he can take us, and he alone can take us to places that we could not go for ourselves. That he can bring unity where there's only been division. This is why, as a person who incidentally does believe that sometimes part of the prophetic task of the people of God is to speak to systems and structures and all that. Like, I I believe in all that. I believe deeply in that kind of work. But I do believe very passionately that there is no kind of work of reconciliation that we can do that will ultimately work without the Lord of the church being at the very center of it. Because the fact of the matter is, through natural eyes, through our own perspective, let's not fool ourselves. There's considerable difference between black and white. There's considerable difference between male and female. Jews are not the same thing as Gentiles. They are not in the same place. Slaves are not in the same place as the free if you just want to say poetically somehow that those distinctions don't exist and aren't real, you're out of your mind. They are real. And where you fall on the side of those lines will affect your experience of life and the church and the world in powerful ways. Those distinctions are real. They exist. The chasm between them is not imagined. It is actual. But the fact is, In Christ, in Christ, there is neither male nor female. In Christ, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. In Christ, there is neither slave nor free. That kind of a world is possible. That kind of a kingdom is possible. But it's not possible without the in Christ. He's the only one who makes it possible. He's the only one who can make a way. He's the only one who can change the attitudes and dispositions of our heart that we don't even know how to do. We don't know how to change because we don't even know how to name them. That's what sucks most about how we approach a lot of these things. The stuff in us that most needs to get fixed, we don't even know how to name. We don't even know what it is. But he knows how to name it. He knows how to change it. He knows how to make us agents of change and reconciliation. What's impossible for man is possible with God. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the Lord of the church. But you're not just the Lord over the church. You're the Lord over the world. And as Colossians talks about, you really are the Lord over all created things. You're the Lord over the cosmos. It doesn't look like it right now, but you are. It doesn't look like you're ruling and reigning right now, but you are. And the day will come when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that you're a Lord to the glory of God the Father. In the meantime, Lord, we live in a broken world with broken systems. Our vision is not right. Our perspective is not right. We're used to trusting our own eyes and our own discernment, and they deceive us. Lord, we know that we don't see it all the way that we're supposed to see it. We know that we don't see people the way that we're supposed to see them. We don't know anything else to say except, Lord, help, help. Change our hearts where our hearts need to be changed. Change our minds where our minds need to be changed. We're not asking you to send someone else. We say, like the prophet Isaiah, here I am, send me. Here I am, send me. And we don't just say that as individuals. We say that as a church. Would you lean into this with me? As sanctuary, we say, here we are, Lord. Send us. Here we are. Send us, Lord. We're not asking you to send somebody else. Send us. Show us the places. Show us the people. We know we can't change everything, but there are some things you are calling us to change. Show us what it is. Teach us how to listen to you. Teach us how to listen to our brothers and sisters. We pray that somehow, because of the witness of these people in this community, because of the witness of this church, other churches all across this city, that somehow, by the power of the Holy Spirit, the very real power of a very real Holy Spirit, the chasm cannot be crossed. Somehow would be crossed. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services on Sundays at 8.30 a.m., 10 a.m., or 11.30 a.m. If you would like more information about who we are and what we're about, or to partner financially with what God is doing through Sanctuary, you can go to our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com. You can also download our mobile app from the App Store and Google Play. We hope you'll join us next week. Grace and peace.